Welcome, folks, to Write Up Your Algae, a podcast about wildlife, ecology, and the environment. We thought that maybe it's a time to do another Biosphere Bulletin episode, and we know it's a little late, but we're doing it for the month of January, so we hope you enjoy. Emily, did you want to start us off with your first story? I sure can, Clara. All right, so today I have sort of a paper that I think just adds to pre-existing research, but I thought it brought up a very interesting topic that has come up in some of my classes recently, and I thought we could discuss it a little bit. So, in a recent paper, it was found that the more complex the canopy structure in forests, the more resilient the forest will be against moderate disturbances. So, researchers are very familiar with large-scale disturbances, but Researchers with Purdue's College of Agriculture measured forest resilience against medium and more common disturbances, such as small fires, ice storms, and pathogen and pest outbreaks. They measured forest canopy structures such as height, openness, density, and complexity. Now, complexity is a bit of a difficult concept to understand, but they describe it as the difference between a block of cheddar cheese and a block of Swiss cheese. It's got different holes and shapes and is more complex than just a, does that make sense? Differences in shapes is a big part of it. But to put it more accurately, the difference between a Christmas tree farm or an old growth forest. What is important to understand about canopy structure is that it can be modified by management activities. So learning if a certain type of canopy structure is more effective in, in, you know, developing the resilience of an ecosystem. That can be modified by creating more openings in the canopy, planting younger generations of trees. You know, there are things humans can do to help it out. So they found that there is a greater resilience and bounce back time against these medium and more common but less dramatic threats when a canopy is more complex. This paper may not seem revolutionary, and maybe even a bit intuitive. (laughs) But it brought up an interesting point that was a recent topic of discussion in one of my classes. And that is the importance of biodiversity from a resilience standpoint and how common offsets that many exploitive companies use are just not enough. So, for example, a logging company may clear 100 trees and then a month later plant 200 more. That is not necessarily an equal give and take because you can't replant a staggering of ages. You can't replant a complex canopy because they're all going to be, you know, they're not going to be truly randomly dispersed. They're all going to be relatively the same age. They're likely going to be the same species. When you get to these offset activities that a lot of companies use, they're not accounting for the importance of biodiversity. They're just checking boxes. So I think papers like this that talk about the importance of biodiversity are really important. And maybe if the people making these sort of, the people setting the regulations had a greater understanding of concepts like biodiversity and how important they are, that they could make better regulations that would actually be more helpful and more suited. Yeah, I think it's an interesting point that they brought up because I think we've touched on it a little bit before about like the issue of tree replanting, like as the example that you gave and how like it's not very effective because like you said, it, it, it's usually monoculture. 
So like one type of species in a given location, and maybe that species doesn't do well in that type of soil. Maybe that species doesn't do well with the microbiota that are there. Maybe they don't provide enough habitat for the individual organisms that are growing there, or they just don't take, like they just don't take and they end up dying. And there's a lot of difference too when you measure carbon sequestration of an old growth forest compared to newly replanted trees, right? Old growth forests are going to be able to sequester more carbon than planting a bunch of new trees because they've had longer time to, to grow and to sequester that carbon. So it's kind of interesting. So for my first story today, I wanted to look at an article that I found in the Canada's National Observer. So it is a news article about an interview that was done with Tori Wei who is the executive director of Ontario Soil Network. And the article is titled Digging Deep for a Healthy Soil. Um, it just kind of drew my attention in just seeing what other people are doing around the world to contribute to healthy soils. So the Ontario Soil Network has been estimated to influence about 2,500 Ontario farmers and about 180,000 acres of land in Ontario so farming land and cultivating land which I thought was like obviously a huge impact because I know sometimes it can be difficult um, especially with different initiatives that people want to take in terms of soil health to get people on board when they have been doing something a certain way for so long mm -hmm. right and that's the same with everything that's true regardless it's true of industry it's true of any type of commercial uh product they want to keep it consistent they're doing it one way and it's working so why don't just keep it that way um, but down the road there could be a lot of issues with that right so tori was a farmer who had struggled and ended up first they they went to get an education then they wanted to farm but they ended up having really hard struggles. They weren't making any money. And so they went back to school to further their education in soil sciences. And while they were doing this, they worked on another farm um, where that farmer taught them a lot about what they knew. And the main thing that Tori was worried about was once they had started their soil science education was the effects of things like tilling and other common soil other com common farming practices that was having a negative impact on soil ecosystems. In this article, it was reported that in 2019, the agricultural industry was responsible for about 72.7 megatons of carbon dioxide released into the atmosphere. Wow. And that was in Canada. One metric ton is equivalent to 2,500 miles driven by an average gasoline-powered vehicle or 120,000 smartphone charges or 500 liters of diesel being consumed. So quite a lot. Um, so one of the most effective ways to reduce these carbon emissions is to help our soils in sequestering more carbon. So the Ontario Soil Network is looking at ways to help farmers find new ways to improve their soil health. They offer training and innovations to farmers in Ontario who are looking to improve their soil health. I found this interview was like super interesting to me. I feel like uh, seeing the different ways that people are trying to take initiative into improving soil health globally, as this is a huge concern, is like super important to get out to the public on on why it is such a big concern. And I will definitely do more episodes in the future on soil health, including 
the issue of tilling versus no-tilling, cover crops, crop rotation, carbon sequestration, and bioremediation. But this is just a glimpse into what Canada is trying to do to improve soil health. All right. So next we have a bittersweet story, but it is a very important step in the road towards potentially recovering one of the world's most iconic endangered species, the African Northern White Rhino. Last year, an embryo of a Southern White Rhino was successfully implanted into a mother after 13 unsuccessful attempts, which carried the pregnancy until it reached around 6.5 centimeters in diameter, that's the fetus I'm referring to, mm -hmm. before she unfortunately contracted a bacterial infection, which killed her. Now, when I said the, um, just because the, the names are so similar, you might not have even caught in it, so this was a IVF attempt in a Southern White Rhino, not the not the critically endangered okay. northern white rhino, but the goal here is to use a embryo of a northern white rhino and put it into a southern white rhino. So there's a lot of efforts being put into place in understanding how to use IVF technology on southern white rhinos to potentially save the northern white rhino species. Now, while this may seem maybe more bitter than sweet, a postmortem was done on the mother and the fetus, which estimated that the fetus had around a 95% chance of survival had she not contracted this um, bacteria. It's apparently a very common bacteria that exists in the soil. It is responsible for a lot of animal death. Um, but this shows promise towards new developing technology to save a critically endangered species, of which there are now only two. So there's two females that are far too old to carry a pregnancy themselves. Um, however, from these two and now passed away uh, male northern white rhinos, there are 30 embryos. They are frozen in Germany. They're ready to go. However, there is a limited supply. You know, there's no more that can be made. This is a very, they're probably the most expensive embryos on the planet. <laughs> so they have to make sure that they have this technology down pat. However, it brings up a very important discussion because it's, first of all, a very expensive operation. Is this ethical on, well, they've, well it's a, a, a success story with the southern white rhinos. You're risking, you know, maternal death with the southern white rhino. Could this money be placed in a better, you know, a better arena? Is this even something that should be done at all? There's also simultaneous research being put into um, using stem cells to create like synthetic sperm and egg cells. Uh, so to increase, you know, genetic diversity in the embryos that they have in their supply because they've only got, they've only got two mothers, they've only got two fathers that have produced these embryos. So it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a controversial topic. In, in my opinion, I'm not sure if this money would exist to go somewhere else, if that makes sense. I know that this money has kind of been a lot of, this is a really iconic endangered species. I feel like I've been hearing about this <laughs> for a long time. You sometimes see pictures, I feel like. There was a winning National Geographic photo one year. Like, they have armed guards around these rhinoceroses. They are a very well-protected species. But it's, um, yeah, it's interesting to think about that there's a lot of so much money is being put into saving this one species, you know? Yeah. It's, it's interesting to think about. Um, <laughs> a little, 
a little tidbit, a little fun fact that could be used in a trivia. I don't have any trivia for this episode. No. But what, one of the things that made it so difficult was that in order for the embryo to be placed inside of a female, it, the reproductive tract is two meters <laughs> inside of the female. <laughs> Oh, wow. Can you imagine two meters? <laughs> Didn't even know they were that big. Yeah. <laughs> so it's an interesting topic, Clara. What are, what are your opinions on this? Do you think that millions and millions of dollars should be put into rhino IVF technology? I think it's interesting and, like, I do think, yeah. I Yeah, I probably think that this is like money well spent to try Mm -hmm. to protect a a species that is obviously not going to survive. Mm -hmm. However, with concerns of the ethical side of like, you know, the Southern white rhino being able to carry it and then not itself go extinct because of all, like, like you said, the bacterial infection and other concerns that this population might be facing. It's kind of like a tough topic. Mm -hmm. if If you know what I'm saying? And also, with placing these embryos into those rhinos, they're not given a chance to reproduce themselves. So I don't know. Cause I know probably the gestation period is really long and, and things like that. So Yeah, it's definitely interesting to think about. There's there's hopes that this could potentially translate to other endangered species. I can't think of any off the dome, like large mammal species that would be similar enough to the rhinoceros that it could translate over well but you know it's a start Mm -hmm. yeah definitely okay so i'm going to be telling the next two stories today um so in my next story i just have a question to start off and this is for you emily how much do you know about the impacts of mining on the environment very little okay so let me tell you about a, a recent article uh that was written by the nature Journal, so it was based off of somebody's paper, but it's kind of like a, a news piece based off of this scientific report. So it kind of reduces me having to go through and read the scientific report, mm-hmm. and it gives some opinions and some some things like that. So I'm basically doing a review on a review, which is okay. not not ideal, but this is basically what this this is about: is to talk about the news and talk about it in a critical point of view and and what you kind of think about it. So this article was about aluminum production. Uh, According to this article, steel and aluminum are the most produced metals in the world, but they both have severe effects on the environment. Steel production uses fossil fuels, and per ton of steel that is produced, two tons of carbon dioxide are emitted. So, So every ton, there's two tons of carbon dioxide, so that will add up pretty quickly, especially if it's the most produced, one of the most produced metals in the world. Whereas per ton of aluminum, it generates about two to four tons of hazardous waste. And this hazardous waste has a lot of different byproducts in it that can be toxic and to the environment and to the ecosystem. So Yovisa Vic Kong et al. in 2024, they, well, they wanted to look for a way to reduce this environmental effect and the environmental cost. So let's talk a little bit about the production of aluminum and the mining of aluminum. So when aluminum is mine from the ground, it produces this hazardous waste, which is called red mud. And although red mud can be incorporated into some different products, it only counts for less than 3% of the waste that's actually being produced. And there's approximately 
4 billion tons of this red mud in the environment stored up. And I think it was about 180 million tons per year that is being produced. So that's a quite, like, that's pretty substantial. And we talked about tons in terms of gas, but, you know, it's 1,000 kilograms. So if you think of that conceptually, then that's, that's quite a lot. So iron oxide is a byproduct of the aluminum mining industry and is found in this red mud. The authors found that there may be a way to convert this into um, this iron um, from the red mud and reduce the carbon impacts of the steel industry. Yet one of the challenges that they're facing is that this method is extremely complicated and it's very hard to extract this iron from aluminum mining waste. However, the authors observed that in the first 10 minutes of their reduction reaction throughout this process, about 70% of the iron and the red mud was converted to metal that could be extracted. They found that from the 15 grams of red mud that they used, they could extract 2.6 grams of metallic iron, which is pretty good. I mean, it's not too bad and, and you are producing like an iron that can be used uh, for lots of different industries and maybe reduce the impacts of steel, um, the steel mining business in terms of like environmental costs. However, the authors also discussed that a cost-benefit analysis and an analysis of the fumes produced by this process are required and further investigation is needed. They also calculated the fate of hydrogen in this process and they determined that the more hydrogen going into the, there is more hydrogen going into the furnace that would need to be extracted and removed and reused to ensure that this process can be done sustainably. The authors do believe that this process is energetically efficient and also can be sustainable for our future. They also predict that this process can produce high purity iron and reduces some other undesirable elements that can cause negative environmental impact, impacts like sulfur. So do you have any thoughts about that? I think it's certainly interesting that there's this is a new and up-and-coming entrepreneurial avenue that a lot of people are going down is taking the byproducts of different industries mm -hmm. and making a new product out of it or just extracting it for further use, yeah. like like in this case. I feel like it, it reminds me of, I feel like I saw it on Dragon's Den or Shark Tank. It was using, like, juice pulp from, mm -hmm. from factories and making, like, fruit leather or something from it. Yeah. And so I'm... I'm interested to see, I guess I don't know a lot about like the chemical process of like refining any of these, so I don't know, you know, they talked about the fumes. Yeah. I, I don't know what potential other impacts if this would lead to something even worse. <laughs> yeah. But I think it's important to explore. Yeah, and that's the thing too, like they do need to do a lot of analysis on these just to make sure that through this reduction process and stuff, there's not more hazardous chemicals being produced because that could obviously lead to um, a lot of negative impacts and it might outweigh the benefit of the reduction of carbon dioxide mm -hmm. and this waste, but I kind of doubt it. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. And this is, this is just me speaking. Like from what I read in this article, I feel like it is a positive movement to convert these byproducts into something else and hopefully they can find it a cost-efficient way to do so. Did you um what were do you know of any of the products that they are already using it for because I know you mentioned oh yeah so it's it's using things like cement and stuff like that so oh, it's just okay. incorporated into other things okay just to reduce the amount but it's not very much and I feel like 
you need to find a different way to convert it back to like the water that it was coming from because Mm -hmm. you're just reducing the amount of water fresh water that we have like through mining like uses a lot of water Mm -hmm. and this can obviously have negative impacts on like groundwater uh, the ecosystem around where the mining is happening a lot of things won't be able to grow there the environment will be too acidic um using the waste in a different way to convert it into something else that's also having really negative impacts on the environment is super important to investigate yeah yeah Okay, so for the last story of this episode, I know it's the January Biosphere Bulletin and we're trying to keep the... um, Is it? I thought we just skipped that one. (laughs) Oh, no, no, no. So it was supposed to be for January. Um, So I tried to find everything from January. So all those articles were published in... Mine were also in January. (laughs) Yeah, but for this last one... It was published in early February, and I was just like... <gasps> Clara! But I found it really cool. Like, I found it kind of interesting, and it's different from what I usually do. It's not focused on soils. Mm-hmm. It's actually focused on birds. So I was like, maybe I should, you know, investigate this a <laughs> little bit further. And I couldn't wait for our biosphere, or our February Biosphere Bulletin to come out, because one, I'd probably forget about it, and two, who knows when that comes out, so... <laughs> Maybe we can start doing bi-monthly Biosphere Bulletins. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So, I don't know about you, but in the springtime, when I open up my windows at night before I go to bed, because it's really hot, and then at like 5 a.m., I'm awoken by this obnoxious bird calling that drives me crazy. And like, I love the sound of birds, but not when I'm trying to sleep. Do you feel that? Or am I the only one? (laughs) Are you talking about crows? Any type of birds. Like, when I'm, like, lying in bed and I'm really tired and I've had an exhausting night, my window's open and the birds start chirping or whatever. Mm -hmm. And they're just singing really loudly and I'm like, great, great, there's birds here, but also, shh, like, I'm trying to sleep. Okay. I gotcha. Okay. My mom once used a paintball on a crow because it wouldn't shut up. Paintball gun. Probably not the best idea. I was so mad. Yeah. I was, like, 12. I was, (laughs) like... How dare you? Yeah. <laughs> and we want them to stop, but they don't stop. And, and But also don't shoot them with a paper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there's actually been a lot of debate in the scientific community as to why they don't shut up. Okay. Interesting. Probably not to put it in those terms, but to why they chirp and why they sing at the times in which they sing. And they call this like the dawn-dusk uh, chorus. So like, okay. it's kind of like... Mm, this, sounds kind of nice. Yeah, this <laughs> phenomenon where they they sing really loudly at dawn and dusk. And the most accepted hypothesis for this is that birds are singing to ward off other male competitors to ensure that they don't engage in mating with their mate, or also for territorial reasons. Some other hypotheses are that they sing when predation is less likely to occur, which would be around this like dusk-dawn period where their predators are just coming up but not really well those nocturnal predators are just coming up in the the is it the diurnal diurnal yeah diurnal predators are like going to bed or whatever (laughs) or not as active and another theory maybe that they have too much energy that they stored up from that night before and that they have the zoomies (laughs) basically they have the zoomies and they just like they need to release that energy during those periods of time like they have too much energy that they stored up for that night and then they don't need to use it that one didn't make like a whole lot of sense to me but i digress 
some of the some of the especially when you take classes on like the arctic because they talk so much about like energy use some of the energy use science and how important storage of energy is is it's a little eh, it's a little shifty yeah i don't know i just think like obviously you can't predict what an animal's going to do because an animal's going to do what it does like Mm -hmm. like it, it it doesn't make sense like we don't make sense we do things that we shouldn't probably do but mm-hmm. we do them anyways um but that one it just doesn't seem like it would be a thing that they would do every single day you know on cue every bird species doing that for the same reason it seems like that one needs a little more i just when i read the article i was like that just seems like it needs a little more information <laughs> <laughs> however a new hypothesis uh was presented by schlitt et al in 2023 because although the other hypothesis can provide some insight into individual species of birds, it may not be true for all of the birds in the world, like the whole bird population. So they were trying to find something more like encompassing of, of all the, the species. Therefore, their hypothesis states that birds will engage in this dusk dawn uh, chorus phenomena when there's a lack of female presence. So it's called like the female absence hypothesis. They believe this to be true based on the different times that the females and males like interact with each other and that the males sing more when their female is gone, like when their mate is gone to the nest to roost or, or to do whatever. And those periods usually happen around that dusk and, and dawn. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they only studied one type of bird, but we'll get into that a little bit later. To test this hypothesis, they recorded blue tit uh, birds, which are... <laughs> blue tit. Yeah, I know. <laughs> which isn't actually... A, it is actually a type of bird. It's Does a it Eurasian have blue tit bird. Blue. No. Well, <laughs> one second. That's uh, going to be the name of the episode. I hope you know. Okay. <laughs> no, it actually is yellow, which is kind of weird. This is oh, what it looks like. Should have been called yellow tits. Yeah. So this is what it looks like. It's really a pretty bird. It is a very pretty bird. Okay, where was I? To test this hypothesis, they did record these blue tit birds uh, when the females were in the nest and the frequencies at which their male partner sang when they weren't present and where they were. So they could record when the females were in the nest and then they had like recording frequency devices on these male birds to sing when they would sing the loudest and then they could also at the same time know when the females were in their nest. So I thought that was pretty cool. And they found that male uh, blue tits were more likely to increase their song frequencies when females were roosting at the nest box and would stop once they left the nest box to join their male partner. Although they found some promising results to test this hypothesis, there is need for further investigation. The researchers were only looking at a 10-day period that was at the peak of the fertile season for females, and these birds are actually known to be at their maximum song frequency during the season. Therefore, it's kind of important that we also investigate at the non-fertile mm-hmm. like, stages of these, of these birds. The researchers state that evolutionary processes and natural selection may not be as important in the dusk-dawn phenomena, which I found kind of weird because when we talk about anything, it's always like natural selection, you know, like <laughs> this yeah. is what caused it. But that these displays have been adapted over time to display male quality or changes in female behavior. So, 
However, there is still one question that the article asks that I would also like to know the answer to, and I'm going to quote it directly from the article. Why do males sing more when females are absent or less when females are present? And it's kind of an interesting question to think about, and it is the whole basis of this paper, but they didn't really tell you why. I feel like that's something that can only be hypothesized, though. Yeah. Like, you can only... You can only get more information. You can never really get... Because you don't know why any animal does anything unless you can talk to it. Exactly. But the thing that was really interesting is that they said, like, this is the mechanism. It's it's more of, like, their hypothesis is more mechanism-based, mm-hmm. whereas the more, um, I guess, accepted hypothesis is that they do it for this reason and this reason, mm-hmm. for, like, territory and, like, defending their mate. Mm-hmm. So... It's kind of interesting, the two different versions of a hypothesis that you can kind of get into, where this one is more mechanism-based, like they do it, they do it when this occurs and when this occurs, like when they're Mm -hmm. absent or when they're present, but they don't do it when, you know, vice versa or whatever. And in the the other one that's more accepted, people actually are saying, this is why they do this and this is Mm -hmm. why they do this, which doesn't really make sense to me because how are you, like you said... How do you know? Yeah, how are you supposed to know that? And I guess there's a bunch of research on this that I obviously didn't Mm -hmm. get into for our Biosphere Bulletin episode. But I don't know. I think it would be an interesting topic to look into for the future. Yeah, That was very interesting, Clara. Thank you for sharing this week. Yeah. So I guess... To, to conclude our episode of the Biosphere Bulletin, we hope you all enjoyed. Um, I know it's been a little late coming for if this was supposed to be our January Biosphere Bulletin, but maybe we'll make it our January-February Biosphere Bulletin, and it's just coming out in early February. Um, and don't forget to go follow us on Instagram at writeupyouralgaepodcast. And we will be posting pictures from this week's episode, and I will be doing that. (laughs) Follow our Instagram for pictures of tits. (laughs) The blue tit bird is what Emily is referring to. (laughs) Multiple, which would be referred to as. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Wait, and Um, if if you have any, like, comments or questions or want any further insight to these articles you can always check out the links in our in our episode description and you can also contact contact us at r-u-y-a podcast at outlook.com with any suggestions for episodes or anything like that we haven't gotten any emails yet so <laughs> don't tell them that well <laughs> we're just so busy we can't possibly answer <laughs> all of our emails or even slide into our dms on instagram like we want to know your feedback and i know we don't have that many listeners but the ones that we do have at Maria. Uh, <laughs> Our one loyal fan. <laughs> We're going to give her a shout out. And we hope this episode was right, right up your algae. Good stuff. <laughs>